Hello, everyone. Welcome Hi. back to Tour Guide Tell All. <laughs> I'm Rebecca. And I'm Becca. So we are back with our latest episode. We are here to tell you guys about the Black Sox scandal. The Black Sox scandal is a very quick overview. It is a group of baseball players in 1919 that conspire or not to throw the World Series or not. And we'll get into all those things, uh, but you might be interested and we thought we'd start out with why are we talking about it? Because we are not in Chicago and we are not Chicago tour guides. And it is also not the 100th anniversary of 1919. It is technically the 100th anniversary of the trial though, which took place it in is. 1920. So there we go. So the scandal doesn't break until 1920, which is how, why we're shoehorning it in. Uh, we are not in Chicago, but we really love baseball, A, and B, um, we think this is a really interesting story and wanted to talk about it. I will mention, if you haven't listened to our baseball episode, we do talk a little bit more specifically about D.C. baseball, the Washington Grays, and the Negro National League uh, in a baseball episode a few months ago, so we'll link back to that in the show notes. But if you haven't listened to that and you definitely want to hear about D.C. baseball, that's the episode for you. I am so glad we're doing the Black Sox scandal, though, because it has a little bit of everything. It has baseball, which we obviously love and is the American pastime. We have gangsters. We have mobsters. We have money. We have capitalism and labor. Uh, we have government regulation. We have all kinds of stuff coming into this story. And the story has been so absorbed and retold and refigured and reworked in pop culture that I think today from like a historian perspective and a true baseball fan his, uh, perspective, it's really hard sometimes to suss out the truth of what happened. So I'm excited for us to dig into it because I think there's very much what we think happened and what actually happened, and there's not a lot of overlap. And then there's a, a big column of a lot of stuff we just do not know even today. So there are some of the best names I have ever heard. Like we got like a cast of characters here and they're great. And um, it's such a great, it's been retold in several movies. That's the plot of at least two movies I can think of off the top of my head. And I am not your movie person. So once we get to the pop culture section, Becca's going to like go to town. So just to, I thought what we would do is talk about, first of all, I'm going to introduce in just a second, the sort of eight players uh, that uh, supposedly throw the series. And then we're going to talk about the overview, sort of the generally accepted narrative. And then we're going to poke holes in it a lot and it'll be fun. One brief thing I would like to mention first is a pronunciation guide. Uh, one of the main people in this story is a guy named Eddie Sicati. I have always heard his name pronounced Sicati, but apparently it's also pronounced Sicat. I've heard it Eddie Sicat. Okay. See, there's like five different pronunciations. And I think so that's pop culture of like, you put a movie out there and everybody's calling Eddie, Eddie Seacott or Sakati, And you're like, okay, which is it? Yes. So 
if we mention different pronunciations, it is the same man. Uh, I just always knew him as Eddie Sakati. Uh, probably because it rhymes. Also, um. we're going to use their nicknames as much as possible because literally nothing makes me happier than baseball nicknames from the early part of the 20th century. We do not have any good baseball nicknames today. No, we really don't. These are great nicknames. So we got Eddie Sacati, Claude Lefty Williams. Guess what position he Because he pitched left-handed. <laughs> uh, Arnold Chick Gandal, who's going to be a big name in this. Uh, Charles swede risberg he was called swede because he looked like one uh george buck weaver uh oscar happy felsch they also called him hap hap happy i love it hap felsch Felsch. and of course the famous one uh joseph jefferson jackson also known as shoeless joe shoeless joe say it ain't so joe ain't show joe so, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are getting ahead of ourselves a little. So that's our cast of characters, including some of the best names in baseball. Um, and we really should start giving nicknames to present day players. I'll get on that. Anyway, uh, the overview of the scandal is this. This is the popular narrative. So in 1919, the Chicago White Sox are very good, but very badly paid and badly treated. And their owner, Charles Comiskey, is a bad person. Uh, And the players, because they're so badly treated, they sort of fall under the clutches of these ruthless gangsters who persuade them down the primrose path towards ruination and scandal uh, and basically pay them a lot of money to throw the World Series. And these poor sort of hapless players, there's never been anything like this before. And, you know, organized crime just sort of looms over them and takes them prisoner. And that they throw the 1919 World Series to the Cincinnati Reds and they get convicted and end the rest of their lives in sadness. So that's the popular narrative. And like most myths, we talked about this with Betsy Ross, we talked about this with our myth-making episode, there is some truth to it, but then a lot of it has been sort of embroidered and fabricated. Yeah, I'd like to, to, to jump in for a second and say, it's important to note that a lot of times when we talk about sports, and I think especially with our 21st century mentality, we think of sports players um, as millionaires, right? These guys are making tons of money and they have these big contracts and there's all this money coming in and they're, they're at the top echelon of the pay scale. And while I have the, the story of the White Sox being really, really poorly played is definitely, I think, exaggerated, um, they are not paid particularly well in the grand scheme of life and comparative to the owners, much like today. Um, they're still only making a fraction of that. And it's important to keep in mind that while there had been several attempts to unionize ball players at various points through baseball's history, there isn't a players union like we have today. Uh, we don't really have organized labor for uh, baseball players till the 60s. So um, they don't have anywhere to go if they really have grievances other than to their owner, Kamitsky, who may or may not be inclined to hear their grievances or compensate them or give them bonuses or uh, address an issue they might have. So it's not surprising that not just with the White Sox, but with other teams, that players are going to be susceptible to wanting to take dirty money or throw games because they are not particularly well protected as a labor group. 
that's true. And there is a tendency with this story to see it as a labor dispute. <laughs> and it's not so much. <laughs> it is not really. And baseball players were treated badly. And we're going to talk about something called the reserve clause, which is just very terrible and onerous. Uh, but there and there is this tendency to see these baseball players as these sort of you know moral men who just get sort of swayed because they're not that smart and you know kind of led down the primrose path to destruction and frame this as sort of some either you know really good guy versus bad guy story or this labor dispute they're you know withholding their labor or, or whatever from the man Neither of which really seem to be true. The other reason I think that this scandal is super exciting is because there's a lot of missed opportunity here too. Shoeless Joe Jackson was one of the most talented early baseball players. He has currently the third highest batting average in Major League Baseball history. So he finishes his career with a 356 batting average, which is insane um and so he he's this great sort of lost talent is sort of the narrative of Shoeless Joe Jackson. Uh, and so I think that that sort of plays into it as well. There's also the story that this is the end of the innocence for baseball, that this is, you know, baseball had been this national pastime and everything was wonderful and bucolic and everyone was happy all the time. And then it, you know, these eight guys sell out their team and it's this huge black eye on baseball. And that narrative isn't really quite true either. And I, I should say, um, as we jump into this, that there's this, I think, really focus on this one event in 1919 as sort of this major scandal, because it's the first time that this has happened, which is not true. There have been about a decade up to this point of various games, series, uh, multiple games being thrown, fixed you know, gambler money put in. So baseball, like every other sport, especially in this era, if you think about things like boxing, um, gamblers have been putting their money in sure. from the get-go. Uh, and baseball is no, no purer a sport than any other when it comes to being susceptible to influence. So while this uh, sort of gets painted as these eight guys are the only eight guys in the history of baseball to have ever done this. And, you know, they're, they're just some bad, bad apples or get led astray. There have been many, many, many other incidents up to this point. Not just then either. Like, <laughs> let's not lie. We're sure. not getting into it, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to mention steroids. We're just going to move past it. Um, so where do these myths come from? So mostly they come from a book, which was later made into a movie called Eight Men Out. It's by uh, a man named Elliot Asinoff. I'm going to recommend the movie, guys, even though it, it is, is based on this movie. book. You got to watch the movie. It is a good movie. Yeah. It's not super accurate, but Ray Liotta plays Shoeless Joe Jackson, and that's pretty cool. No, that's Field of um, Dreams. Oh, that's Field of Dreams. Dang it. Shoeless Joe Jackson in Eight Men Out is played by D.B. Sweeney, who was also in The Cutting Edge Tote Pick. It's got John Cusack as Buck Weaver. I love it. Okay. Michael Rooker as Chick Gandel. It's so great. It is. It's really good. It's a really good movie. So Elliot Asinoff writes this book in the 60s after almost all of the major participants have already passed on. And he very much reframes this entire scandal, takes the bones of the story and basically repackages it for a next, another generation. So a lot of this, these myths are going to come from his narrative. The first myth that is very easy to shoot down is that the Chicago White Sox were underpaid. 
Now we can set aside and we'll get back to the idea that baseball players were generally underpaid and under and poorly treated, but relative to their peers, they actually were not. In fact, the Chicago White Sox in 1918 had the highest payroll in baseball. Entire payroll for the whole team was $93,053, which is not a lot of money today, obviously. But back then, they were the highest paid players. Uh, Eddie Sacati was very well paid and was, in fact, the second highest uh, earning pitcher after Walter Johnson. So he made about $25,000 a year, which, again, was a lot of money for first of all, but particularly relative to the common man, $25,000 in 1919 was a lot of money. Today, that'd be a little shy of about half a mil. So, I mean, he was bringing in, and again, comparatively to other players, he was at the very top of what guys were making. Right. And there's this Asanoff in his book advances this theory that Eddie Sacati was due a bonus that if he won 30 games, the owner of the team, Charles Comiskey, would have paid him a significant bonus. That appears to have made, been made up out of whole cloth. Uh, Asanoff says that the bonus should have been given in 1917. The movie says 1919. It, there's no source material for this. And bonuses in those days, contracts weren't incentive-laden the way that they are today. Today, you get a bonus for everything in the postseason. You get a bonus for winning a certain number of uh, games and statistics and whatever your contract is. But in those days, contracts were very bare bones. The the absolute best players in the game may have had some sort of incentive in their contract like Walter Johnson uh, and Babe Ruth later would. But at this stage, very few players had these kind of bonuses. So it appears that Asanoff just made up this entire story to sort of give Eddie Sicati more of a backstory uh, for this. And this is a good time to talk about something called the reserve clause, which is complicated. And again, we're not lawyers, <laughs> but basically what a reserve call clause is, and the reserve clause is something we don't, that it stops existing in the 1960s. So kind of around the time that Asanoff is writing this book, the reserve clause is in the process of getting torn apart. What the reserve clause essentially states is that ballplayers are owned by their club. Even after your contract expires, your club owns the right to you as a player. So you cannot negotiate with another team. You cannot, there's no such thing as free agency. So there's no, like when your contract is up, there's no other team that's going to swoop in and start a bidding war for a good player. You are owned by your ball club. You can be traded over which you have absolutely no say. Uh, you, your contract can be bought and sold to another team, but you yourself have no recourse. There's never going to be a time when you can just call up another team and say, hey, I'm not getting that great of a contract with my current team. What are you going to offer me? You had to take the contract you were given by your team uh, there really was nothing else you could do. That, so that's what the reserve clause is. And it's not super great. Uh, this is going to force ball players to uh, be played a lot less than they uh, should have been paid. It sort of lowers the market value for baseball players. Uh, but this is universal across baseball. It's not just the White Sox. It's not the Red Sox. It's not the Cincinnati Reds. It's everybody. And this doesn't really get broken until the 60s. So right around the time Asinov's writing this book. So this is not, um, but ball players are not particularly well paid generally, particularly relative to their salaries today. 
Bryce Harper, we're looking at you. Um, but they are, um, it, the Chicago White Sox were not relative to other ball clubs. They were the highest paid. Yeah. And Comiskey, Charles Comiskey has gotten another sort of myth I want to mention. Charles Comiskey has gotten a bad rap, I feel like. He was not really any more or less miserly than any other owner. The owner's priorities were different back then. Today, like 60% of a ball club's earnings go to paying its players. Back then, that was not at all the case. Um, he was very sort of standard for owners. He was not particularly generous, but he wasn't particularly, you know, miserly either. Um, he, Charles Comiskey, what had been a player himself in his younger days. He was a real baseball pioneer in his younger days. He'd, he'd been around baseball his entire adult life. And initially, the scandal, when the scandal breaks, he is initially seen as the victim. You know, these baseball players are conspiring to cheat him, to cheat his club out of a win. And it's not until, again, Asinoff's book that this is going to change. Charles Comiskey dies He went in the 1930s. He's given a huge funeral. He's li literally eulogized by everyone in baseball and sort of dies as the victim of this scandal. It isn't until Asinoff sort of rewrites this that Comiskey becomes the bad guy or one of the bad guys in all of this. So that's worth mentioning, too. I also think Kaminsky's role in this is sort of fascinating because there also starts to be a lot of question of when did he know mm -hmm. and what did he gain by saying or not saying anything? Because it's interesting sort of the victim mentality of being cheated of a win, but there's certainly evidence to suggest that he was aware of a fix from game one, but not wanting to tarnish the reputation of his team and the reputation of Major League Baseball at the point sort of keeps quiet. So it's kind of, I think Comiskey is much more complicated and complex, you know, not really a victim, but not necessarily the, the villain in this story either. Somewhere in the middle kind of going, fixes happen and we're yeah. just going to see how it plays out. I feel like this will, like with so many other things, there's really no good guy in this scandal. Like there are a few bad guys, in fact. I don't think Comiskey's one of them, but he's certainly not a good guy either. So I feel like this story has, he's okay. And then there's a bunch of guys who are not really great. Um, another myth I'm going to dispel is this idea that the poor, innocent baseball players got seduced by the lure of dirty money and, you know, easy riches and bad gangsters. Mobsters. The mobsters. So mobsters are bad. Let's just stipulate that. Uh, but it appears that the ballplayers approached them, not the other way around. So if you, I don't remember the movie that well. I'm a little fuzzy on the details of the movie. But in the movie, like, I remember this, like, darkened, smoke-filled room where they, like, lure the players down, you know, into destruction. And the, you know, mobsters are sort of very stereotypically, you know, mobbed up and bad. And the poor, innocent uh, baseball players don't know what to do. That does not appear to be at all true. It seems that um, Chick Gandel and Eddie Sacati uh, were the ringleaders. And from the, it's unclear, because obviously these things are kind of done in the shadows, but it seems that both Gandal and Eddie Sacati are going to separately approach different gangsters. And then they do it together. 
Uh, the gangster who it appears is most, most associated with this scandal is a guy named Arnold Rothstein. And Gandal makes himself, Chick Gandal makes himself the middleman, which also brings me to number, myth number three, that they were all equal in this. Doesn't appear that was true either. It appears that Chick Gandal, uh, Eddie Sacati was kind of the leader, but also Chick Gandal had a questionable role. And it seems that the gangsters paid Eddie Sacati, gave him money that he was supposed to distribute to the other guys in the scandal. And it is not clear at all whether he did that, or at least whether he did that on an equal basis. So it appears that he kind of cheated the rest, um, Eddie Sacati kind of cheated the rest of uh, the gangsters sort of in this process. So it's the ball players are not quite as innocent uh, as um, I think they would have wanted the public to believe that they were. You know, gangsters seem to be a convenient uh, bad guy, uh, but the ball players weren't, weren't exactly pure as the driven snow. What's uh, fascinating to me is sort of in subsequent interviews in the 30s and 40s and 50s, there'll be associates of Arnold Rothstein's who will give various self-serving interviews, some of which really play up Rothstein's connection, some of which, you know, denies really a direct connection. Uh, so much like the players will sort of, I think, do these interviews to kind of cast themselves, even the gangsters <laughs> will find themselves some wanting to say that they were in on the fix because it boosts their their cred and some saying oh we really weren't a part of it at all which of course Rothstein will will play the role of legitimate businessman and deny in his lifetime I'll mention too Rothstein like our ball players had a great nickname which was Mr. Brain that was his 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 mobster nickname was Mr. Brain uh the brain Mr. Brain I love that so much and also like the mobsters, like, it is also worth mentioning that we're a year away from Prohibition at this point. So the mobsters are about to get a whole bunch more busier with stuff that has nothing to do with, like, baseball. They are about to get, like, pretty soon, as soon as the scandal breaks by 1920, they're involved in the liquor trade and baseball and sports generally are kind of small potatoes. So it, it isn't as big a deal to the mobsters. This is kind of small change for them. Um, um, not to beat a drum, but part of the reason these players seek out organized crime and, and this kind of money too is because they've they've heard about other players doing this they've heard about even players who are uh, kind of revered like ty cobb had been rumored to have gotten mob money to throw a series of games so um and they know that boxers are getting that money and they know that other sports um players and athletes are getting money so it's not at all surprising to me and and easy to believe that they would have initiated that contact this was my next myth uh this that this is the only time when baseball players reportedly took bribes or fixed games not at all close no um there were multiple allegations of around this time for multiple different games um this scandal was just the biggest their purported attempts to fix the world series start in 1903 and the world series starts in 1903. So from the very beginning of the World Series, there has been the implication, at least, that somebody's fixing it. Uh, the um, allegations of a fix are going to be to dog the World Series in 1903, 1905, 1914, 1917, and 1918. So of the 15 years at this point we've been having a World Series, that's like a third of them. So it's the fix is in. And reportedly, 
the Black Sox, the, the, white, the 1918 White Sox, were so envious of the money that the Chicago Cubs had made throwing the 1918 World Series. So that's the, the, apparently the impetus for this. The Chicago, apparently the Chicago Cubs threw the 1918 World Series. I'm a Red Sox fan. I root for the Red Sox who won the 1918 World Series. So I don't think the Cubs threw it so much as the Red Sox won it, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> however, the, reportedly the White Sox players were so jealous of all the money the Cubs made that they conspire to throw the 1919 World Series so that they can get their payday. Um, just the week of game one in 1919, Ty Cobb and Chris Speaker were both first ballot Hall of Famers uh, were accused of rigging a Cubs-Indians game that playoffs. So this is not at all, not, nothing is new. Like there has always been sports betting like, oh, I bet you 10 bucks on the game that happens between people and like that happens in communities all over the place. That's not what this is. This is sustained sort of organized fixing of a, a world series of a major sporting event. And it was not new. It was not, there had been reports even before the series is over that this particular 1919 World Series had been fixed. The reason this one sort of captures the imagination is this is the first time the public knows about it, that it's well documented, that it's public, and Charles Comiskey makes a big deal out of it after it sort of gets sort of found out. Uh, and so that's sort of why it becomes such a big deal. The other myth, um, which sort of ties in with this, is that the players play really badly. That myth is not true either. It, the series goes deep. In those days, World Series went to nine games, so best of nine rather That's than best so of so many games. So many games. I can't, as stressful as the World Series is now, like with seven games, I can't even imagine two more. It would make me insane. And this series goes to game eight. So the Cubs do win it five to three, um, five games to three, uh, but it is not at all a blowout. There, it is pretty clear that the first two games, the White Sox are going to throw them. They lose both of them. But beyond that, they actually played okay. Shoeless Joe Jackson in particular, who is accused of um, helping being part of this conspiracy, he's going to bat 375 in the theory, the series and has eight hits, which is not somebody who's trying to throw the game. He's doing pretty well. Uh, Chick Gandel himself wins a game with a walk-off hit, you know, so they're not doing really well at this or they're not understanding what's expected of them or something is going wrong here. So this is part of why this has been so difficult to figure out because there's not as much concrete evidence that they were throwing this as you'd assume that there would be. This was not, um, this was not a, a five games to nothing sweep. This was sustained. And this is what makes it so hard. I think at the end of the day to really know you know, these are the eight, the eight players that ultimately are, are said to be part of this, but it's hard to know how invested each player is, especially outside of Chick Candle and Eddie Seacott, because when you look at their stats, it's tricky. And you know this, I think, especially as a Red Sox fan, and I know it as an Astros turn Nats fan, but you know, you can have a great team and they get to the playoffs and they biff it, you know, you get to the big game and good players play bad. So, mm -hmm. you know, while there's definitely eyebrows raised with game one and game two, particularly among 
the local sports press who um, are keeping track of each play and each thing, a lot of the general fans are sort of initially like, well, you know, it happens. You, you get to the big game and you, you mess it up. And even today, it's really hard to know if you look game by game, you know, you look at Buck Weaver's stats, you look at Hap's stats and they're playing pretty on par to how they've played all season. So it gets really tricky to know who was really in on it Mm -hmm. Were they really in on the fix? Did they say they would and then never saw their money? So they just kept playing. So there's all of these things that leave a lot of open-ended questions. And there's also like Shulish Joe Jackson will later claim with some plausibility that he wasn't in on the fix, but he knew it was happening. And so that he was paid money to be silent, not so much to throw games. Because the truth, and the other thing is with a fix, you can't make it look too super obvious because that's not going to look really great either. Because if it's really obvious, then there's like a red flashing light, like, hey, we're losing this on purpose. So there's a lot of, a lot of the players will claim, just like Shoeless Joe Jackson did, that they knew about it, but didn't say anything. You know, they weren't part of it. And so it's difficult. Again, they're not writing contracts or anything. There's, you know, they're not writing this down for obvious reasons. So there's a lot of wiggle room as to who's involved and how much is involved. And there's also always been a suspicion that the reason they do so well is because the, their opponents, the Cincinnati Reds, were, have a, had a separate fix and were trying to lose themselves. So it's also possible that both teams were trying to throw the game for money. So... <laughs> Again, nothing is as cut and dry as you think it is, um, which is kind of the point. And another thing that I would like to mention is we're also not dealing with the most incredibly sophisticated guys. This is not an age where ballplayers have media, you know, um, people who prep them for media and they have, you know, somebody who helps them out with sort of their talking points. These are, you know, ballplayers get recognized pretty early. And a lot of these guys had like third or fourth grade educations. Shoeless Joe Jackson could not read. So these are not the most sophisticated men. Um, and they want money. You know, it might not be much more complicated than that. They wanted to do this because they wanted extra cash. And did they or not? I don't know. But that's another thing that kind of um, factors into this. Now, the story goes that Charles Comiskey knows about this either while it's happening or right afterward. But he can't really do anything. He doesn't want to, he doesn't quite know what to do at first. He doesn't want to blow up his ball play, ball club. He doesn't want to accuse without proof. And so he's just going to kind of sit on this for the better part of a year. And this does not, this scandal does not break uh, until September of 1920, which is why we're doing it now. It's a hundred years later. Uh, a grand jury is called to look into um, the corruption in baseball. And eventually the grand jury is going to come around to the Chicago White Sox. They're going to put eight of them on trial. Uh, Comiskey immediately, as soon as this becomes public, puts the seven players who are still on the roster on suspension. And so the trial takes place uh, over the, uh, the next few months uh, all, of all eight guys. Now, here's the thing that's kind of interesting. Fixing a baseball game at that time was actually not a crime, technically. 
um, they, what they were doing, what the, the crime that they were trying to get them on was um, they could only be charged with willfully defrauding the public and injuring Comiskey's business. And the either the prosecutors didn't make the case or the defense nullified the jury. It's not really clear which, uh, but the, all eight guys were in fact acquitted. So they actually all um, are acquitted of this crime. And I think we However, should take a moment to think about it from Comiskey's point of view, because there is a lot of evidence today that suggests that Comiskey knew well during the series that there was likely a couple players in on a fix, if not to the extent it, it turned out to be, but that, you know, baseball is a business and the White Sox is his business. And from Kaminsky's perspective, they are way more profitable, untarnished than mm -hmm. they are if eight of the players, a good chunk of the roster is found out to be cheaters. And so there is sort of this vested interest, not just Kaminsky, but other owners to say either this is, a, this is all a scam and this is being overblown, or it's just these eight bad apples and nobody else, right? If, right. if they really worried about protecting baseball as a brand, and that's really important to the owners. And they'll go whichever way the wind is blowing. Yeah, and they sort of zero, I think rather than expose baseball generally to sort of a wider scandal, because it's pretty clear that this is happening on a wider scale, I feel like Comiskey volunteer, not volunteers exactly, but like these eight guys are kind of thrown up as a scapegoat. Easier to get rid of these eight guys than to expose a larger problem with uh, fixing games. And so what the owners are going to do, Comiskey as well as all the other owners, they're going to get together and basically beg a federal judge named Kennesaw Mountain Landis. What a name. I love that name so much. Uh, we've mentioned Kennesaw Mountain Landis before. He, the name comes from his father fought at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain in the Civil War. He lost a limb. And so what better to, thing to do than to name your child after the place where you lost your leg later on in life. So he named his kid Kennesaw Mountain Landis after the battle. Anyway, Kennesaw Mountain Landis is basically begged to abandon his federal judgeship and become a commissioner. Now, this had not something that had existed in baseball before this. They create the position of commissioner for him. And basically, Kennesaw Mountain Landis is okay, I'll do it, but I want to be completely powerful. No owner can question me. No owner can stop me. I have a position for life. And if you give me those things, I will clean up baseball for you. And the owners are so willing to do that. They so want to preserve their brand and preserve their profit center that they give Kennesaw Mountain Landis whatever he wants. Kennesaw Mountain Landis will rule baseball like a king for the rest of his life. And uh, he, the, one of the first things he does is he's going to uh, kick out, put a lifetime ban on all eight of these players which is why they're called eight men out. Uh, they are given a complete and total and immediate lifetime ban from professional baseball. They can't play. They can't even go to games. That's it. Done. No, there's no appeals process. There's no recourse. They're out. And so in the prime of their career, and some of these guys, particularly Shoeless Joe, Shoeless Joe Jackson's best year was 1920. So at the prime of his career, he is done. Uh, that's it. And so that's sort of Kenneth, what Kennesaw Mountain Landis does in order to sort of preserve uh, baseball. And I'll, I'll mention too that Landis does a little bit more house cleaning as well. He'll mm -hmm. um, 
bench or make ineligible several other people who are suspected of being involved in gambling. He basically cracks down on owners who don't just own baseball teams, but also own things like horse tracks and other sporting venues and says, look, you can't do both. You can't have anything that might have gambling associated with it if you're going to own a baseball team. And so in 1920, 21, Landis takes that control that he's been given and this kind of like, you know, no holds barred power. And obviously the, the eight men out is sort of the big cleaning house, but he's not afraid to go to other teams and say, you got to get rid of this player. You've got to do this. You've got to, you've got to get your stuff in order. So it's good for baseball, but Landis really does, I think, do way more than the owners ever suspected he was going to do. Yeah. Kennesaw Mountain Landis kind of takes the initiative and he does do what they want him to do, which is he does clean up baseball's image completely. He throws out anybody with a hint of scandal and sort of, you know, forces baseball into this big moral reckoning. Uh, But then he just, I think the owners expected that he'd clean house and then would just sit back and collect a fat paycheck for the rest of his life. And Kennesaw Mountain Landis was just not that guy. Like he wanted to be in charge. He really enjoyed the fact that he had all this power and continues to exercise it uh, all the way up through the end of his life, which is going to be in the forties. So he really rules baseball for at least the next 20 plus years. And part of the reason the reserve clause, which we talked about earlier, takes so long to uh, fall apart is because Kennesaw Mountain Landis is going to, uh, hold on to it. So all the other thing Kennesaw Mount Landis is going to do is Kennesaw Mount Landis is a racist. He does not believe that baseball should integrate. That's why baseball does not integrate until after his death. So he's going to keep the uh, sort of gentleman's agreement uh, of keeping the Negro Leagues and the MLB separate uh, for the rest of his life. Now, what happens to the rest of them? Uh, they all are going to petition to be reinstated and they're all repeatedly denied. Buck Weaver petitions for reinstatement six times starting in 1922. And the last time he's going to petition for reinstatement is in 1953 after obviously he can play like he's 33 years later, he can't play anymore. Uh, after Landis's death, uh, he is going to continue to petition for reinstatement and continue to be denied. Uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson is going to go to work. He owns eventually a store and there's this really heartbreaking story. Later on in life, he goes back home to the South and uh, Ty Cobb happens to come into his market and uh, Ty Cobb recognizes Shoeless Joe Jackson, and Shulish, and he says, I wonder if he knows who I am. And Ty Cobb, of course, is one of the most recognizable guys in the country. And Ty Cobb comes up to him and says, hey, is that you, Joe? And Joe says, yeah, it is. I didn't think you'd want to know me. And so, Aww. like, Shoeless Joe Jackson ends his life sort of very sadly and uh, poor and... Uh, sort of shunned by the only thing he was ever good at. Uh, when he dies in 1951, death makes a player eligible. So it removes any ban on their participation. And so in theory, any banned player after their death should be eligible for a Hall of Fame. But he, despite several petitions for exoneration, including one by Ted Williams himself, Teddy Ballgame, petitions for um, Shoeless Joe Jackson's exoneration in the uh, 90s, it has all been ignored. Successive commissioners have completely blackballed all eight of these guys. Um, Shoeless Joe Jackson is really the only clear-cut Hall of Fame case among these eight guys. There's a couple that would be on the bubble, perhaps. Uh, But um, Shoeless Joe Jackson and and all the rest of them have never been included on an eligible list for the Hall of Fame to this day. So they've all been excluded. Uh, which I have some issues with, but 
<laughs> Whatever. Um, now, it's a big black eye for baseball. Baseball suffers mightily in the, in the press for this. This becomes a uh, very black mark, a tarnish on their name. Uh, however, the instrument of baseball's resurrection is already in the game by 1920. Uh, he is famous, but not <laughs> as famous as he's about to be. Uh, and he will almost single-handedly reinvent baseball uh, and make it America's pastime almost by himself. Becca, do you know who I'm talking about? I believe you're talking about Babe Ruth. I am talking about Babe Ruth. Um, in 1918, Babe Ruth still played for the Red Sox. Aww. He gets sold. I know, it's very sad for me. Uh, he gets sold memorably uh, to the Yankees in 1920. And uh, by 1923, they have a new stadium for him in uh, the Bronx. And he goes on to be sort of the babe and world famous and his popularity is going to really rejuvenate public interest and support for baseball so he is what sort of brings baseball back out of uh the shadows of this terrible scandal yeah i think you know there certainly the the 1919 world series and the black Sox scandal if if you're a fan of baseball right it's something that gets talked about and dissected and debated a lot but this is i think one of those sports moments that has really leached into pop culture in a big way uh, i think most famously for most people is field of dreams with kevin costner you know, build it and they will come, uh, which really, I think, plays into the the bittersweet aspect of Shoeless Joe Jackson and the man of the eight who probably really was the least likely to have been in on the fix, probably likely didn't receive any money or was only given money to keep quiet, uh, and sort of the, the great greatest talent of the eight of them. Uh, so Field of Dreams, I think, really uh, did a lot to elevate kind of the legacy of Sheila Joe Jackson. There is, of course, Asinoff's book, which was made into a movie, Eight Men Out. Again, historically, it's based on this book, so the history of it is very muddy. Um, but it's a great book, and I think it captures a lot of this era in baseball uh, and how baseball is going to change. Uh, and it's got a great cast. Like, if you just like character actors, it's just stacked. My husband and I rewatched it just to kind of prep for this episode. And it was just so fun to watch, even though I'm like, that didn't happen, and that didn't happen. Um, but this is like everywhere. Um, if you've read Great Gatsby, there's a character inspired by Rothstein and a reference to the 1919 World Series. If you've watched The Godfather, if you've watched Boardwalk Empire, anything that deals with gangsters in this era, there's almost always a reference to the 1919 series. There's a great episode of Mad Men uh, where John Slattery is on LSD and he sees himself as at the 1919 World Series. So it's just such a pivotal pop culture moment. And today, I mean, and especially if you are from Chicago, live in Chicago, it's so steeped in Chicago lore, um, in books, in movies, and TV. So uh, I think this is something that's just kind of going to continue on, um, even in the next 100 years. It's, it's such a pivotal sports moment, but it's really a pivotal cultural moment. And I think you were talking about uh, how prohibition is going to change a lot for organized crime. And this is right on the cusp of that, where organized crime is going to move from sporting and gambling and racing into the world of liquor. Uh, and that's going to be a huge shift culturally for the United States. This is happening right as we're ramping into the roaring 20s. Um, it's just a really, really interesting American moment. Yes. Um, and it has a great legacy. Uh, just a great, I mean, it's a fascinating legacy. Great is maybe not the right word. Yeah. 
it's really fascinating and it's just such a great moment you can kind of like it makes you feel like baseball's got a more innocent has a more innocent past um but it's just such an interesting interplay of the sports world and the gambling world and the sort of cultural moment as we're heading into the roaring 20s and um yeah it's such a great plus field of dreams is you know I love you were kind of saying, um, you know, baseball sort of this more innocent sport or believed to have this more innocent past because it is the great American pastime. But in true American fashion, the reality of its past is a lot more dirty and complicated than yeah. it seems. Yeah. Uh, like so many things we end up talking about on this podcast, that the reality of it is usually a little bit more complicated than, than we'd like to think. And frankly, more interesting. I mean, the whole, the idea of the, the surface of the story that like these ballplayers get led down the primrose path by some gangsters is like, okay, like, uh, you know, whatever. But like the real interplay of the different personalities and their motivations, I feel like is much more interesting than the sort of boilerplate. And is there anything more American in some ways than greed and being tempted by some extra money. No. Is there anything more American than owning a profitable ball club and saying, eh, let's just wait and see if anyone finds out about this before <laughs> I decide to get rid of my money-making ball players? Like all the choices that these players make, the owners make, the press makes, it's all so innately American. Oh my goodness. And even the like Asanoff writing the book, like Asanoff's writing this book in the 60s when labor issues are kind of at their height and he's very much in that mode. He's very left wing and has a labor agenda. And so he reframes this entire thing to be this sort of left wing socialist parable about how capitalism is terrible. And so there's that element to it too. And it's just so like an interesting perspective on so many different parts of um, America, the American story. It's got our past, our two favorite pastimes, baseball and money. So true. I will also briefly note that Asanoff's book's timing is interesting because as you mentioned, it's when most of the people who are alive for this are gone, but several of the players, most notably Chick Gandel, um, was not shy about doing interviews uh, towards the end of his life, particularly in the 1950s. And the players themselves are also putting out a lot of interviews that cast themselves in a more innocent life. And Asanoff is able to sort of jump on these semi-new contemporary retellings and and saying, hey, look at these poor players. Right, yeah. And he's really, poor guys. I know. He takes a lot of their statements at face value, and it's like, uh, yeah, come on, buddy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about so that. He, so here we are with our podcast. We've somehow managed to do baseball twice this year already, but we can't help it. We love it. Um, I'm yeah. so glad we don't have a nine game World Series. So, um, Rebecca, that was great. I love hearing you talk about everything, but particularly about baseball. Uh, if you enjoyed our episode, be sure to subscribe and to like and rate us. We love uh, your feedback. You can always email us at tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode and your ideas, questions, anything at all. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook uh, at tourguidetellall or on Twitter at tourguidetell. Uh, we usually will put some little sneak peeks of our episodes up on social media, so you want to be sure to be following us. Uh, you can buy your tour guide tell all swag from our shop. We have some amazing stuff, tote bags, mugs. I love the t-shirts. That's my favorite part. 
And if you are a patron, uh, and we love our patrons, thank you to our wonderful patrons, you actually get a discount on your first order in the shop. So become a patron. Uh, not only will you get special behind the scenes videos and clips and interviews and all kinds of fun stuff, but you'll also get a chance to save some money on your swag and you'll help support us tour guides while we're still uh, sort of waiting for the work to come back. That said, um, this little uh, scandal episode is a little preview for what we're launching in October. Uh, the month of October uh, is going to be a spooky, scary, scandalous month. We're going to be turning the podcast towards some true crime. We're going to be talking about some cemeteries. We'll be talking about some hauntings and ghost stories and some scandalous affairs. Um, so we're going into a little bit of a uh, Halloween-esque mode in October. This is also as we're launching um, with Free Tours by Foot, uh, some more uh, small grouped mass distance scandal tours. So if you're interested in that, you can always check us out at dcbyfoot.com or freetoursbyfoot.com, but we're launching into doing some more scandal tours and scandal podcast episodes. Yay! I'm excited for October. It's gonna be fun. I am too. <laughs> it's already, as we record this, it's already beautiful fall weather. I can't believe I'm saying that in September so when normally I'm still sweating, mm -hmm. but I am, I'm in a sweater and everything. I'm so excited. Oh, I know. It's so great. I'm so excited. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, we always love our listeners and we'll see you next time. Thanks everybody. Bye.